when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Jack Conti, who is the co-founder and CEO of Patreon. That's the platform that allows people to pay their favorite creators directly, sort of like a monthly subscription for artists and musicians and writers that you might like. If you've been listening to Decoder or reading The Verge, you know that the idea of paying creators directly is popping up on almost every social platform and in a range of new startups. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram all are coming out with various direct payment products. Several months ago, I talked to Chris Best, the CEO of Substack, which has empowered a lot of writers to go independent, and on and on it goes. Basically, every platform is looking for a way to let creators charge their audiences directly and then take a cut. The buzzword for all of this is the creator economy, which is just an overloaded way of saying that individual creatives can become businesses unto themselves, with multiple lines of revenue and a direct relationship with their audience. That's opposed to the basic business model of most social platforms right now, which is almost entirely based on advertising, and which has created all sorts of contentious problems along the way. The conversation about the creator economy is a big shift that's happening now, but Patreon was founded eight years ago, and it's grown to be a formidable business along the way, with familiar business challenges. Just this past April, the company raised another round of venture capital, which tripled its valuation to $4 billion. Then a couple weeks later, Jack announced the company was laying off 36 people from its product and design teams so it could streamline and execute on its new product roadmap. That's a lot of change and a lot of pressure for a company that needs to be a stable resource for independent creators. Jack and I talked about that, of course. We also talked about the overall creator economy and the entire idea of making money on the internet as a creator. Jack himself is a musician. You'll hear him talk about his bands Pomplamoose and Scary Pockets, and his experiences trying to sell music have clearly colored his ideas about what Patreon can and should provide. One thing that separates Patreon from something like Instagram or Twitter is that Patreon isn't itself a social platform. And while Jack told me Patreon will offer more and more powerful creative tools, his basic vision is really about letting audiences pay for creators to work on a wide variety of platforms. You'll hear it come up right away. Jack refers to Patreon's model as membership, which we took some time to really figure out. 
I also took some time to push on Patreon's relationship to Apple and the App Store. After all, Apple wants that 30% cut of every digital purchase on the iPhone, and Patreon lets creators sell things, but it doesn't have to pay the cut, while other similar platforms appear to be stuck paying the tax. I asked Jack if he worries about Apple cracking down or changing the rules, and how creators should feel about Apple and the App Store coming in the way. If you ask me, this fight between Apple and creators is about to get really messy, and I don't think anybody's ready for it. Jack's answers here were pretty illuminating. Okay, Jack Conti, co-founder and CEO of Patreon. Here we go. Jack Conti, you're the co-founder and CEO of Patreon. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. There's a lot to talk about. It feels like the words creator economy come up in almost every conversation I have lately. But you started Patreon in 2013. You're a recording artist yourself. You've seen this entire movement grow into the monster it is now. Just really quickly, for listeners, Patreon is effectively a platform that allows people to pay creators directly. That's correct, right? That's right. Yeah, we, you know, are a membership platform. So we allow folks to like have subscription pledges to creators in exchange for exclusive content, community, stuff like that. I want to dig in on, on why specifically you call it a membership platform. But that basically, you're transferring money from people who like things to people who make things, which is important. You're very successful. I just read in the Wall Street Journal in April, you raised another $155 million in funding that tripled the value of Patreon to $4 billion. So that is quite a journey over the past eight years to go from startup to $4 billion valuation to everybody in the world is trying to compete in the creator space. Give me a sense of that ride and where you think things are now. I mean, I guess in many ways, I'm not surprised (laughs) that the world is kind of waking up to this. I remember this feeling in 2012, the end of 2012, I spent three months working on this music video and I poured my savings account to the Vizio. I, you know, I spent ten grand on it. I maxed out two credit cards. I was taking daily trips to Home Depot, swiping my credit card, you know, getting supplies for this music video. I was listening to a lot of electronic music at the time. I'd released this EP, and I wanted to make a video with these robots. And I built a replica of Money and Falcon cockpit in my studio. And I had worked so hard on this video. I killed myself for three months to do this. <laughs> you know, like spent so much money, um, and just like gave it everything I had. And I remember this feeling like the night before upload, where I realized I'm going to put this video on YouTube. It's going to get a million views because that's what my videos would get at the time when I upload them. And, you know, my paycheck for that is going to be like 160 bucks from from YouTube. And I remember thinking, how the fuck is this still possible? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what world are we in where creative people are pouring their hearts out, uploading stuff to the internet, getting millions of views. This is not like the starving artist problem. This isn't like, oh, I don't have fans and I'm not making it. This is like a million people are seeing this. Like, you know, 10 football stadiums full of humans are about to watch this thing that I made. Thousands of comments and like excitement and passion energy from the community. And I'm going to get paid $160 for this. Like what world is this? And how is everybody not screaming about this problem right now. It felt so obvious. And that's why it doesn't feel like a surprise to me now. It's fine. I'm so grateful. I'm so glad that the rest of the world is waking up to this problem. I think the next decade is going to be 
awesome for creative people because they're going to have options. They're going to have the ability to, you know, generate revenue in whatever way they want. There's going to be a bunch of companies building for them. I think it finally the world seems to be waking up. But yeah, eight years ago, like, you know, there, there was nobody solving this problem. So let me put that in even a longer time frame for context in, I don't know, the 90s, the height of the CD era. We'll, we'll stick with the music industry. A band would release a CD a handful of radio stations and MTV would promote it. A lot of people would buy the CD. The band would get rich. And then we would have a conversation about things like, well, this band allowed their song to be used in a car commercial. They sold out. They did too much for money. Right. And it was like, it was like a big deal. I mean, I'm obviously like a nineties kid. This is where my head's at. Yeah. <laughs> but they made money selling the music directly. And if they monetized their work in other ways, like sync rights or movie licensing or whatever, there would be actually be a conversation about authenticity and selling out that is gone. Now, as far as I can tell, that is gone, gone. And the, one of the reasons that's gone is no one makes money selling the thing itself anymore. You more or less give that away for free for 160 bucks on YouTube. And then you've got to find all these other revenue streams around your work. If we're going back to the nineties, let's, let's go all the way back. (laughs) Like let's, let's keep going for thousands of years. The way the arts were funded globally was like wealthy people or institutions were like, I enjoy what you make. Here's a bag of coins. Go make more of that stuff and let me know when it's done. (laughs) And this sort of patronage model was the way that art was funded for literally thousands of basically all the art we know in history books. You know, the business model for that art was not unit sales. It was patronage. It was a person who made great stuff. And then an institution, you know, a religious institution, a government, a wealthy individual would pay that person to go make more of that. And you name it, whether it's the Sistine Chapel or the David or whatever, that art was funded through that business model. And those artists made money through that business model. Then the 1900s rolled around, late 1800s, right around the turn of the century. Essentially, what happened was humans figured out how to record what would otherwise be ephemeral art onto physical objects. You know, we figured out how to record light onto yeah. celluloid. We figured out how to record sound onto wax cylinders. And that replaced, eventually, the business model of patronage with unit sales being the primary revenue mechanism for artists. Starting in 1900, like billions of dollars of infrastructure basically evolved, whether it's jewel case manufacturers or trucking companies or brick and mortar retail, all this infrastructure evolved to basically help artists put their art on a physical object, and then ship that physical object around the world to consumers who would purchase it and then enjoy the art. That became the primary business model for art and artists, whether they're video or audio or whatever, music, talk, whatever it is, for then like 100 years, at which point the internet hit and you know, scarcity disappears, <laughs> unit sales disappear as a business model. <laughs> and suddenly everyone's running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out how to get creators to make money again. And we're right now in that time where I think humans are realizing like, oh, <laughs> when we built the first version of the web, we wiped out a hundred years and billions of dollars of infrastructure to be the financial mechanism for artists to make money. And that needs to be rebuilt now in a digital first age. So that's the place in history where I think humans are with regard to creative people making money. You describe this as a membership model, which is fascinating. Every one of the models you've described has huge inherent trade-offs, right? The church and some rich people are going to fund all art is like the ultimate gatekeeper trade-off that you can think of. A bunch of record labels and MTV executives are going to fund all music 
had a huge set of trade-offs. Like, MTV didn't play rap music for the longest time, right? A huge set of trade-offs. The internet removed that gatekeeping ability, but it also removed the underlying economic model. But you're still, you're not back to unit sales. You're calling it membership. And I want to know why you're calling it membership. Well, I think that's a really important insight is that like all of these models have trade-offs in a perfect world, you know, art and commerce, I think could be um, in vacuums and and coexist, <laughs> you know, in, in full purity. And the truth is like, if you want to be a professional artist, that's figuring out how to create a business model around your art. And even with unit sales, there were certain inherent pressures of that overlap between art and commerce, right? Like a, you know, a band goes through the classic thing. Okay, there's our there's our first record, like the second record. There's a lot of pressure there. We want to sell a lot of copies of that second record. We want to get on billboard charts. How do you do that? Well, here's the big kind of new sounds that are coming out. And it's not just bands. Artists have always had that pressure or rather, it's the eternal question that artists ask themselves. Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for my audience? And I think if you involve commerce in any way with your art, you start to grapple with those trade-offs as an artist. So I agree. I don't, I don't think those trade-offs go away with a membership model or with a unit sales model or even with a patronage model. But describe specifically what a membership model is and why you call Patreon that. So membership is a, a new category of essentially like a business line for creators where they can make subscription revenue from their most important fans in exchange for benefits of membership. You know, things like early access to content, exclusive content, community, extra spaces where they get to be, you know, a part of a, a group of people that are talking about a certain subject. For, for me and, and my band, Scary Pockets and Pomplamoose, some of our membership benefits are we have a, a patron-only Discord and patron-only Discord events where our singers will come in and they'll play their favorite music for our members. <laughs> and members get to hang out on Zoom with me and, and my Scary Pockets co-founder and singers and listen to the band play music and talk about music and people kind of get to have a, a little, you know, digital Zoom party together and a few hundred people show up and it's a really fun thing. That's an example of like exclusive content community for members. So membership is, is this like stronger connection that an artist has with their most important fans that really revolves around more stuff that they're making, more art that they're making, and then this sort of community of those members coming together and, and hanging out with each other. I want to dive on that a little because, you, you know, the unit sales model is you put out a CD, hopefully a million people go out and buy a thing. And then hopefully you, the artists have negotiated a good record company contract and you get a bunch of revenue from sales. Membership sounds like there's no transaction. I'm just handing over money and hoping that you do cool stuff. That's a really good point. And the way I would kind of describe it is where a unit sale is, you made something and I want that thing. Yeah. Membership is... I believe in you as an artist. I think you're going to keep making cool things. And I want to be a part of that journey of you as an artist. It's more of a belief in the future of that person and the things that they will make. It's more of a commitment to that artist that you want to be a part of their ongoing creative expression. It is still somewhat transactional because members have benefits and they're they're paying for exclusive content and exclusive experiences. So there is there is a transactional component of it, but it is not purely transactional. And that separates it from the business model of unit sales for sure. So this is a, a pretty ethereal conversation. We're up in the clouds. Let's get down on the ground. Let's do it. Every platform has dynamics. Every platform 
has best practices. At the end of the day, some people on Patreon are more successful than others. And some people have strategies to be successful on Patreon. What are the brass tacks strategies to be successful on Patreon? Um, I'm going to stay up in the clouds and then come down. Nah. <laughs> okay. Come on, man. So, <laughs> I'm trying to reel you in here. Okay. Well, look, knowing that membership is about that like stronger relationship between a, a creator and their most important fans and the belief in that creator and their ongoing artistic expression, the creators who do best are the creators who deeply love their fans and whose fans deeply love them back. Right. If, if there is like a really strong connection and we find this is true with podcasters, with video creators, especially with a lot of web comics. But I'll give you some like, you know, hard and fast, like leading indicators maybe of like successful creators on Patreon. If you have a lot of subscribers, say, or followers, that is less predictive of your success than your like daily or weekly engaged fans. Mm-hmm. If when you put something out, a lot of your fans listen to it, watch it, review it, read it, etc., that's more predictive of your success on Patreon than, say, the sheer volume of subscribers that you have. That's one thing. Second thing is if you're the kind of creator who involves your fans and you do T-shirt design contests when it comes time to, to you know, make merch and you're answering emails and you do DMs on Twitter and you, you're there with your community. If you're a really good community manager, that's highly predictive of your success on Patreon. If you offer exclusive pieces of content, it is highly predictive of your success on Patreon. If you have bonus episodes, the podcasters that we've seen do best do the freebie 30-minute thing to kind of be out in the ecosystem and find, you know, new audience. But then they do the hour-long deep dive for their members only, and it drives a ton of conversion. We saw that when we added exclusive content to the creator page a couple years ago, it literally doubled conversion rates from logged out fan to member. So, yeah, those are some of the things, you know, good, like, exclusive content, good, engaged creators that are like love their audience and, and whose audience love them back, I think are, are two of the main, you know, two of the main things. Let me be really reductive with that. It Great. sounds like what you're saying is do a lot of stuff people like. Uh, yes, I suppose. That, well, that sounds a bit more pessimistic. But well, I just I, that is when we're talking about art and commerce and the, the collision between the two make a lot of things that people like is still kind of always the formula. And I'm curious if you think membership has actually altered the dynamics of that formula. Right. Well, I'll tell you a story. I was asking this studio what the best merch was for creators because they were experimenting with creator merch and they were trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out like what is predictive of a creator's success with a merchandise line. And their answer was like, the creator has to love (laughs) the thing that they're making. So I would say the answer is a little similar for for what, you know, for, for your analysis here. If you just do stuff that other people will like, I actually don't think you're going to be that successful as a creator. It's got to come from your heart. Like it has to be a real thing that you yourself love. Otherwise, it's too hard to be a, to be a creator. Like, <laughs> I mean, you, you'll give up. So I, I think it is. it really is the overlap of things that light you up as a creative person and things that resonate with your audience. And is Patreon a solution to supply and demand and traditional economic principles i don't think so like yeah it's still there's still markets and there there's still market forces that are at play and it's still commerce and patreon does not solve that problem you know what patreon solves is 
I need a new revenue line for myself. I'm making $160 in ad revenue and I want to grow a team and build a business and be a professional creator. And Patreon allows me to do that. How many people on Patreon are earning a full-time salary or something equivalent to it? I think the last number that we release is around 250,000 creators making money. And we actually don't have data on how many creators are full-time creators. I don't know that. For my band, Scary Pockets, about a third of our revenue is membership. And we're starting to see more and more creators whose you know business looks about like that, where a, a third to a half or sometimes more of a creator's you know, income is coming from this membership line of business. It's a solid, recurring, reliable line of business that, that creators can use to basically grow their, their income by 50% if they're just, you know, doing ads and streaming or something like that. Let me put that in contrast to sort of the new generation of creator platforms. I'll pick on the Substack. We had Chris Best, the CEO of Substack on Decoder uh, a couple months ago. A lot of writers are quitting their jobs and going to Substack, and that is their full-time job. And in some cases, they're making a lot of money, more than they made at their full-time jobs as Substack writers. It seems like with Patreon, that's not quite quite as direct of a conversion from one thing to the other. I actually think it is it is pretty similar. The, the main difference is that in the case of Substack, you know, many creators did not have a full-time job as a creator employed by another company, right? Media companies mm-hmm. are employing, you know, thousands and thousands of writers, and they can leave that job and go to Substack or Patreon. In the case of a lot of internet creators, they were not previously employed by a big institution that was paying them a salary. Um, so these are like new revenue lines for these creators. I'd say like that's that's one one main difference. But in terms of the dynamic of people being able to quit their jobs and and make make a living on Patreon, absolutely. Like we're seeing that in droves. We're seeing people who are becoming full-time creators and you know, they're doing creativity now, they're doing YouTube, they're doing podcasting, they're doing whatever it is, not just as a full-time job, but they're building media companies. I mean, we we see creators who are leasing office space and hiring teams. I was telling a story yesterday about True Crime Obsessed, you know, and we were showing pictures of their office space at, you know, at our all hands. And there, there are creators who are, you know, building essentially what we're calling small business creative media companies, which were not a thing 10 years ago. There's a lot of risk in quitting your job, whether it's your job in media or your job doing something else, and then going to be an independent creator or starting a small business. You've got to even out your cash flow. You've got to get health insurance. You know, Substack will give people advances. They will pay for health insurance in some cases. They're running into some questions about who gets those offers and who doesn't. I think that's totally fair, but they are doing it. They're de-risking it, basically. Patreon has done some of that stuff in the past. I have a quote here that says, you want to be a long-term infrastructure provider for independent creators. Is that still the plan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked a lot about the past so far, but when I think about the future, um, and I'm an optimist, so maybe take everything I say with a grain of salt, <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but I am optimistic about the future for creative people. I think with all of the competition now to help creators make money, essentially, I think in aggregate, it will work over the next decade. I think it will work. It will send tens of billions of dollars to creators. You know, YouTube just announced that they've sent $30 billion to creators over the last three years, I think. $160 at a time. $160 at a time. There you go. TikTok announced a billion-dollar creator fund. And there's downward pressure on pricing now. So I think Spotify has announced 0% fees uh, for their subscription product. And Facebook announced 0% fees till 2023. We'll see 
how long that lasts. But the point is, there's a lot of effort and competition to send money to creative people. And I think in aggregate, it's going to work. And I think what's going to happen is while the first 20 years of the web was really about distribution and mm-hmm. helping creators figure out how to reach people, the next 20 years of the web is going to be rebuilding as a society, rebuilding the financial engine to get creative people paid. And I think that's going to create generations of full-time professional creators, full-time professional artists. That group, that, you know, whatever you want to call it, that market, that generation, that category of people doesn't really exist right now. Or, I mean, it's starting to exist, but to a small degree of what it will be in 10 years. And they're going to need all kinds of, you know, things over the next 10 years. Some of the things you mentioned, they're going to need health insurance. They're going to need systems for unification and organization. They're going to need um, logistics. They're going to need capital. I mean, when I went to go get a loan as a creator, when I went to get a loan from the bank, I was in escrow for 90 days. The bank wouldn't give me a loan when I tried to buy a house because they didn't understand how I made money. And they said, send us your pay stubs from your job. And I said, what are pay stubs? Because <laughs> I didn't have a job. And they said, you know, the things that prove that you're making money. And so I sent them my iTunes reports, which is where Amazing. most of my money was coming from in 2010. <laughs> and like financial institutions are not set up to understand creative businesses. Anyway, I guess my point is there's so much infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt for creative people in this new world where there are hundreds of millions of creative people around the world being professional full-time creators. And I think all of that infrastructure is largely unimagined and certainly un, unbuilt right now. Are you providing capital to people? Yes, we are. We launched an advance product on future expected earnings, on membership earnings, about, I don't know, a year and a half ago or two years ago. It's in like super alpha. We've only done a few deals, um, but we do deals and we, we help creators kind of understand like, how much am I making? How much am I going to be making? And then we'll give them an advance on, on those earnings. How do you calculate future expected earnings? So we have very predictable growth in cohorts of creators. So in aggregate, we know with a lot of accuracy how much, you know, this particular group of creators, you know, that signed up in in June, how much that cohort is going to be making, you know, a year later. And so it just gives us the ability to give these creators a deal that they're not going to get anywhere else because we have such confidence in their earnings and in their businesses. And the thing about subscription businesses and and especially creator subscription businesses is they're built on trust. They're built on a solid relationship with their fans. And so they're very predictable, you know, businesses. And so that's how we calculate it. And then we give creators an advance based on that calculation. But it's not everybody in the cohort, right? No, but I mean, it, in aggregate, right, it, it, it evens out to be about whatever that cohort was doing. Is that data transparent? Can I go look at it somewhere? No, we haven't released cohort data on like cohort growth of individual like months of creators that are joining the platform. I mean, we've announced like, you know, overarching numbers of, of Patreon's general growth, but we don't, we don't publicize our individual monthly cohort data. Well, I ask because once you start handing out money, the question of who gets the money and who doesn't becomes very fraught. And so you're saying there is a calculation, you have some data that drives those decisions. I I think it's fair to say, can I see the data and and see how you're making those decisions? So what we do is when we're talking to a creator, you know, about a particular deal. And again, like this is not a thing that's in our product yet, right? Like all these advances are happening 
you know, with individual creators and individual team members at Patreon that are building out this product. And so when we're having those conversations, we're obviously very transparent with creators talking about, you know, the timeline, the fee, you know, how much we think they're going to be earning, why. So all that is happening with individual creators. But right now, yeah, we're not going out and publicizing that particular creator's earnings or cohorts of creator earnings. Do you think as you make the program bigger, come out of Alpha, you're going to have to do some of that work? Absolutely. I think we're going to want to be very transparent with how we calculate that and 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 what the fee structure is and why and how long the payback period is and why. But the way we're doing it now is just giving creators options like, hey, here's the fee if the payback period is this. Here's the fee if the payback period is that. Here's why. So, you know, again, all those conversations are happening ad hoc. But yes, when we productize that, when, you know, when we put it in the product and you can see why, of course, we're going to we're going to be like making sure that that's very clear and transparent with creators. Is that just cash or is that other benefits like health insurance and whatever else? On those cash advances? Yeah, I'm just curious. Like if I was to say I'm going to quit my job and, and do Patreon, the first thing I think about is, well, I have a three-year-old and I need to make sure I have health insurance. It would The first thing I would think of would not be cash. Totally. Right. It would be this other blocker that I'm very responsible for a small person and I need to make sure she has her health care covered. I think most people mix it all up in their minds. They don't think I got to solve the cash and I got to solve the insurance and I got to solve an even revenue situation. It's all just one big problem. I completely agree. And I think it all gets wrapped up into this question of, do I want to take the leap? (laughs) Do I want to be a full-time creator? Can I take that risk? And the risk is kind of all bottled up into all those things. Right. When you're doing advances in this little alpha program, are you just focused on cash or are you focused on all the other bits as well? No, right, right now that is a cash advance program. I mean, we've done partnerships with like healthcare companies to offer creators discounts on on health insurance and, and things like that. But we don't have a health insurance program yet. I would love to have a health insurance program. We, we don't have it yet. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Jack and I will discuss Patreon acting as a service instead of being a destination. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. 
Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, we're back with Jack Conti, CEO of Patreon. One of the things you've talked about here is, and it's come up several times actually, people sign up to become members on Patreon and then the creators on Patreon do a bunch of things. And in the course of describing the things that the creators on Patreon do, you have mentioned like six other platforms, right? You've mentioned Twitch, you've mentioned Discord, you've mentioned YouTube, you've mentioned whatever else there is. Those platforms are now careening into direct payments for creators. So Twitter has super follows. They just bought Review, which is a newsletter platform. They're obviously going to compete with Substack. Facebook, as you mentioned, is offering zero fees on their upcoming suite of creator revenue products. It's an endless list of things. Clubhouse is going to do tipping and events. Patreon isn't a destination like those platforms, right? If I had to describe sort of what I would imagine your biggest competitive pressure is, is that right now you can become Twitter famous you can convert some people who love you on Twitter into paying for your Patreon and then you'd give them some other stuff. If you're just like, you're on Twitter and you like me, push the button, give me some money. You might never send those people off to Patreon. So are you considering making Patreon itself more of a destination or is there another plan there? On those platforms, those are not your fans (laughs) and we want to believe they are, but they're not our fans and they're not our customers. They're Facebook's users. They're Twitter's users. And when Twitter or Facebook can make more money by sending those users elsewhere, they will. But I don't own that audience. They're, it's not, they're not really my fans. On those mass media companies, on those sites that are destinations, those are not solid platforms on which I can build a business as a creator. With one change, they can cut my traffic in half and, and do, I mean, often cut my traffic in half. And I'm left as a creator with suddenly half the views, half the ad revenue, and none of the control. And now I've actually lost touch with half of my audience. You know, Popmoose has been on the internet since 2008, putting out videos. Now when we make a post on Facebook, we get a little pop-up that says, uh, congratulations, you've reached 1.3% of your audience. Would you (laughs) like to reach 1.8% of your audience? Pay $200. I have not been building a fan base on Facebook. I've been building Facebook's user base. And I didn't know it. (laughs) Anyway, creators will need, and it's not just creators, it's individuals on the web. I think Shopify is thinking about this in the same way. People need a place where they can own their customer relationships, where there's not a mitigator between the consumer and the author and the creator and the merchant or whoever it is. So yes, those companies are, of course, getting into payments as they should. I'm actually very excited about that world because... Again, I think it's net positive for creators. I think all that competition is going to mean that creators are about to make literally billions of dollars over the next decade. But I think along the way, creators are already starting, certainly media companies and creators are starting to realize, I'm not safe on these platforms. I don't own my customer base on these platforms. I don't own my fan base on these platforms. And there needs to be a better way. There needs to be a place where creators have the control and have the email addresses and can integrate with MailChimp and get access, you know, to their audience, um, regardless of the platform's feeling about their algorithm that month. That's a good sell. But if you're somebody who's just like motivated to go viral on Twitter, 
it's really easy to push that button and not worry about this problem. How do you get them to start thinking about their business in that way? So b- buttons are helpful, <laughs> um, but buttons are not the answer. Membership doesn't work because there's a button that you can click. It works because there's a relationship. And so I think if, if as a creator, you turn on a button, it'll work a little bit. You'll get some extra revenue, but it's not going to be like building a membership that you care about and talking to your audience about that membership and investing long term in a space where you can be close to your members and have ownership of that audience. That is a completely different thing that we see happening. And I think that's why the platforms so far have had trouble with things like membership. I mean, in many ways, YouTube's been working on this for 10 years, right? They released paid channels in like 2011. They released fan funding in 2014. They released channel memberships in 2018. None of these things have really taken off. Um, And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to trust in these platforms. Pablo's, my band, we've learned not to rely on YouTube for our business. When we get up and authentically push something to our audience, we're not going to push a YouTube-based monetization system. There's too much risk involved with that for me as a creator. Let me flip that around in you. There are creators on Patreon who would say the same thing about Patreon. Right. Patreon is a platform. It has a terms of service. It has a content moderation policy. There are extremely complex fanfic controversies that run in and out of this. There are DMCA controversies. There's ongoing loss. Like there's a lot going on on Patreon and people feel the same way about Patreon as you just described feeling about YouTube. How do you bridge that gap? I actually think the, the feelings are, are pretty different. In YouTube's case, in Facebook's case, there's 12 years of, of history of being like cut off from my audience, of not being able to reach the people that I've built relationships with. Whereas on Patreon, you know, 100% of your posts are delivered to literally 100% of your audience 100% of the time. You get the email addresses of your members. You can download them in a CSV and take them somewhere else. If you feel like Patreon isn't serving you properly, you're literally free to take your members and go to another place. And we've baked that into our business model and into our site so that it's, I think, a healthy layer of accountability to make sure that we are always putting creators first, which I think is at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is like the key differentiator is the, is the business model and the creator first culture. Our customer is not an advertiser, right? On Facebook and YouTube, the customer is the advertiser. For us, our customers are creators. And so we're doing things to make our creators be successful. And we're not successful unless creators are successful. So we've, we've baked those dynamics into Patreon in a way that these other platforms have not. Now, are we going to have you know, trust and safety debacles and content policy issues, of course. I mean, actually, I think all that stuff is going to get more heated over the next few years as the debate around, you know, 230 heats up and as I think we really start to reckon with content policy over the next couple of years. So I, I don't think that stuff is going away. And our approach on that, I think, has been a little different than other platforms in a, in a few ways. One, we're just kind of unapologetic about our stance with not allowing certain things on Patreon. You can't be racist on Patreon. 
And a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people don't like that we have a hard line around that policy. But again, we're unapologetic about it. And our feeling is they can go somewhere else if that's what they want to do. So I, I actually think that we've, um, yeah, we've we've made enemies along the way, but I think it's the right move. I wish more platforms did that kind of thing. Um, and then the second thing that's different is humans make decisions at Patreon, not algorithms. There's never a creator takedown without debate and conversation and a team getting together. Obviously, you know, we're at a scale where there needs to be automated like flagging. So, you know, posts will get flagged and things will get flagged. But then humans review those things and there's an escalation process. And at the end of the day, humans are making decisions. There's recourse. Creators can call, you know, somebody and talk to them and understand what's going on. We also developed a system so that 90% of the time we work with creators to help them understand the content policy. And literally 90% of the time, we're able to like help the creator stay on the platform because we want to have that human touch. We want to be reaching out to creators. We want to be in conversation with them. We want to be educating them around what I think is a broadly opaque field of content policy right now because it's changing and developing so fast as the industry changes and develops. So I'm not saying that we're not going to have all those problems as we scale. We're a, a platform that's reaching a scale where there's going to be all kinds of stuff uploaded to Patreon and we're going to have to deal with it. But I do think at the end of the day, it comes down to the creator first approach as opposed to a brand first approach or an advertiser first approach. Those are not the people we're serving. There's no advertisers on Patreon. So at the end of the day, we have just the stakeholder of creators to worry about and focus on. Let's talk about those rules for a second, though. As the creator economy conversation is heated up, another company that is just sort of at the forefront of it is OnlyFans. They allow people basically to subscribe to sexually explicit content from a variety of performers. There's other stuff on OnlyFans, I'm aware, but that's what they're known for. That's not a market Patreon is in. Do you want to be in that market? Do you see that as something you could expand into? No, we've been pretty clear from the very early days that we don't allow pornography on Patreon. And that's just because, you know, our, our mission is about creators and podcasters and YouTubers and journalists and web comics and, and helping those people. So it's not like a values-based thing. It's just a mission-based thing who we've chosen to try and help and serve. Here's an easy question. Define pornography. <laughs> Do we have uh, 25 minutes? Um, so actually, I, I really I really like the subject. I've thought a lot about, obviously, <laughs> trust and safety and content policy. You know, there's that famous quote, you, you, can't, you can't really define pornography. You just know it when you see it. This is a bad quote, I want to say. The judge who wrote that quote uh, regretted it very deeply. I just want to put that out there. I strongly disagree with that quote. Okay. And you can define pornography. In way more detail than I would care to define right now. <laughs> and um, we have teams of people. 10% of, of Patreon's team is trust and safety and content policy folks whose job it is to lay out in great explicit detail what is and is not constituting pornography. So, yes, we have defined that. The thing is, you can't define it with a headline. You have to define it with eight pages of text. And it includes a lot of detail because, you know... I think like sexual themes in art is a thing that's existed for you know thousands of years. And I think it's an important component of art. And so I would say Patreon's content policy is more liberal than other uh, content policies, partially because we don't have to deal with brands and advertisers. We don't have to have a place that like is brand 
safe, brand comfy. We don't have to make <laughs> we don't have to make Clorox feel comfortable on Patreon. We don't have that. We don't have that um, pressure. So we can allow a creator to be naked. And then the question is, okay, how do we define the difference between that and what we've come out and said? Okay, we don't allow pornography. How do we draw that line? And again, you know, we draw that line very thoroughly with with a very long, explicit content policy. By the way, it's written so explicitly. When you're writing a content policy, part of the way we approach it is it should be so detailed that you could take a person off the street with no training. They could come in, look at an image, read the text, and nine out of ten times, they would make the same decision that the team would make. This is, have you tested this? We haven't brought in people off the street. It's a big claim. The level of detail that we're shooting for is is that. Like, it's it's explicit. I'm going to start a Patreon, and the Patreon is just me bringing in people off the street to try to do content moderation using your rules. I mean, that it's a big claim. I'm, I think every platform that has a content moderation policy, they would make almost the same claim. Maybe not a person off the street, but a person of moderate legal training, they would say, can come in and make this decision. Or a warehouse full of contractors and locations around the world can be brought up to speed on our content policy and make moderation decisions. The other thing I'm curious about, Patreon has an app on the app stores. The app stores have their own content moderation policies. They have their own rules. Do you think about what Apple will allow on Patreon as you make your policies? We partner with a lot of companies, right? We, we're not everything in a box custom built by Patreon. We exist in the infrastructure of the web. More than Apple, it's like payments companies, right? We have to make sure we have to partner with payments companies and see how they're thinking about trust and safety and content policy with all of our payments partners. That's probably the biggest one that we think about and work with and have partnerships teams that are devoted to is just, you know, understanding how their thinking is evolving. More so than Apple, because I'd say the payments companies are kind of the most strict in terms of content policy. So that's probably the focus more so than Apple. But What's something Visa won't let you do? Well, <laughs> so it, it depends. You can, do, you can do a lot of things, right? You can pay for porn with, with a credit card on the web. It just changes what kind of policy you're under and what sorts of codes you use to process and then the fees associated with those streams of processing. And so... You can do things. Even with Visa, it's just like, what is going to be the fee structure associated with that? And is that the fee structure that, that we want our creators to be paying? It's, it's things like that. So when it comes to fee structures, I'll bring it back to Apple. Kayvon Bakepour, who's the head of product on Twitter, was on the show a, a few weeks ago. We talked about super follows. I said, are you going to you pay the Apple fee? You're going to get around it. And he very clearly said, we are not in the business of getting around platform fees. As I understand it, Patreon does not have to pay the in-app purchase fees. You're talking about a direct relationship to payment providers. You're directly ingesting people's credit card numbers. Why don't you have to pay the fees? I wish we had some special contract with Apple. We don't. Um, we have to deal with the App Store policies and review process like anybody else. And sometimes we actually get delayed and have to make changes in the apps. Um, there was one point years ago where our app wasn't approved. And we, you know, got into some conversation with Apple. And then eventually, I think a few weeks later, we figured it out and we got approved and we had to make some changes. I, honestly, it was like four years ago. I don't even remember what the changes were. But we have had to deal with the app review policy and the app store review policy for, you know, since, since when we had an app. And 
Why don't we have to pay fees? I think it's because for whatever reason, we're within Apple's guidelines and we haven't had to pay fees. This feels like something you should definitely know, right? Isn't this a long-term risk to Patreon that Apple will listen to this and wake up and give you a call and say, time to pay the fee? Well, actually, the way people use our app and the way Patreon has kind of set up the business as a platform for creators, as you mentioned, like there's not a ton of discovery right now happening on Patreon. People are not coming to Patreon to find a bunch of creators and then supporting creators. They're using the app to communicate and to hang out between patrons and creators to make posts, to talk to each other. And then a lot of the actual engagement is happening on other platforms. Like a big portion of our creators are using Discord to hang out with their communities and to be with their communities. People are not like coming to Patreon like you would come to YouTube to find a bunch of creators to support. So it's just not the, it's not the primary behavior that's happening on Patreon. Can you subscribe to a membership in the app? Uh, I think what we do now is we we kick you to a web flow. If you try to subscribe, we don't have an in-app purchase button. And Apple hasn't come to you and said, you need to add the in-app purchase button. No. That's fascinating because we just did a story on another platform called FanHouse. They're very upset because they had a model much like Patreon's and Apple demanded that they add the in-app purchase button. They say, we don't want to pass that on to creators. Like we don't have the money to just like, front 30% of the costs. And they made a direct comparison to Patreon. Did you see the story? I saw one of the tweets. Yeah. (laughs) There were many tweets, but I'm curious, like, did that light the light bulb for you? Hey, I need to make sure that we're actually under the rules we think. Because one of the stories of the, the big platforms, if you're beholden to any platforms, if you have an app, there's only two distribution methods. It's Apple and Google. And they do change their terms all the time. So I'm wondering how much stability you feel there. Honestly, with the with the app review policy, we've never really felt a ton of stability. I think, again, like we've had conversations where the app hasn't been approved. That doesn't feel great. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, you know, we have to make changes and, and do things. So far, it's always worked out. But like, does it feel stable? No. But it's such a tiny, again, it's such a tiny portion of pledges actually happen on Patreon. The way Patreon, the way, the way members find new creators on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, on wherever it is, um, you know, a creator will mention their Patreon. Then they'll go to the creator's Patreon page. And that's almost always, you know, mobile web or web. And then the, you know, the fan will become a member. And that almost always happens outside of the app. And then, you know, the member will download the app and use it as a communication channel for key updates and things like that. But even then, a lot of the engagement is happening through partners, through MailChimp, through, you know, Discord, et cetera. This feels like, one, you don't really want to build that destination with algorithmic recommendations. Like, if I was like, you should make the Patreon app more like Instagram, I feel like you would just tell me to, to, to go away, right? Like, that doesn't feel like the thing you want to do, but it also feels like the thing you cannot do, because once you start turning those wheels, you are going to run into the the store problems, the the app store rules and regulations. That world is bad for creators. Again, the, the world that we're building is where a creator owns the relationship between those fans. If we become a mitigator of that relationship, if we start, you know, building algorithms to determine, hmm, you've made a post as a creator. Are we going to give this to your fans or not? That's terrible for creative people. But, but discovery is not terrible for creative people, right? I open the Patreon app and you say, you've subscribed to these four creators. Here's two more just like them. You can push the button and subscribe here, right? That seems like a very natural thing to want to do. 
Yes, both creators want that and fans want that. Finding new members is hard. And I think that's good for for creators. But like a when you say turn Patreon in, in, into Instagram, into a destination mass media platform, like a feed product where, you know, you have thousands of connections and you're trying to choose where you're going to give your time today. That's the that's the bad world for creators where the platform ends up mitigating the relationship between, you know, between a creator and their fans. So I just want to confirm, you haven't had any direct conversations with Apple about what rules you fall under and where your limits are in terms of accepting payments in the app. Well, I mean, we have multiple times as we've, you know, gone through the review process. I mean, that that has come up. I think it came up again a few years ago, and that's when we actually got delayed. And, I, and again, I don't remember what the changes were, but we made some changes and then we passed the review process and and it worked. Yeah, it just the thing that I'm circling around, and I'll be more direct about it, is you want to build a suite of tools for creators, but you are bounded by what payment processors will allow you to do, by what the operating system stores will allow you to do. I don't know that those boundaries are transparent back down to the creators. And I think that's actually a tension here as the creator economy grows. Uh, ben Thompson, who writes Stratechery, has riffed on the very famous... Kevin Kelly idea that all a creator needs is a thousand true fans. If you have 1000 true fans who buy everything that you make, you will make a good living. This is a, a very famous idea that's rolling around. And Ben has pointed out that because of all the fees along the way, you actually need something like 1700 or 1800 true fans because you've got to pay the, the toll booths along the way. I don't think the creators quite understand that Patreon has to deal with gatekeepers of its own, potentially pay those gatekeepers money, and then they will be on the hook for those fees. I think if you look at Facebook, Facebook is trying to make that abundantly clear to the creator economy that Apple's going to charge them fees, that Google's going to charge them fees, and that Facebook is not going to charge fees until 2023. But I'm wondering if you are trying to make that more transparent to creators as well. We spend a lot of time talking about fee structures with creators. The biggest fee structure is payment processing fees. And I mean, when a creator signs up for Patreon, we have a whole page that explains that. And we have sections of our dashboard and our creator dashboard that explain fees and how much fees are, you know, costing a creator and what those fees are and why. But I do agree with you that a lot of the fee structures of the internet, and especially with regard to the creator economy, are going to be reconsidered over the next few years. Because I think at the end of the day, as a creator, if you've got a membership and you've got a merch line of business and you're touring but then you have to give up 30% of your revenue. That's a big hit as a small business. That's a big hit as a creator that's, that's trying to build a, a creative media company. I don't think that's going to work over the long run because I think essentially what's going to happen is for competitive reasons, platforms are going to be trying to get creators paid as much as possible. Platforms are going to be trying to help creators reduce those fees and take home as much as they can. And I think overall what that's going to do is just create pressure on the industry to make sure that creators are are taking home as much as they possibly can. So I, I agree that I think a lot of this conversation is is going to drive better outcomes for creators, you know, over the next 10 years as as all this stuff gets figured out. We have to take one more break here, but when we return, Jack and I will get into the changes happening at Patreon and what's next. We are back with Decoder. So there's a question I ask every executive who comes on the show. You've been at 
Patreon for a long time. You've seen this economy grow up. How has your decision-making framework changed and what is your decision-making framework now? You know, one thing I've learned <laughs> over the years that I'm working on is, well, I'll give, you, I'll give you two answers. First, the hard part is when you can apply a framework to decisions, that's actually quite easy. <laughs> then you just run your process and make a decision. The hard part is recognizing when a decision falls out of the framework or that there is a decision that needs to be made and there is a decider who needs to be appointed and there's something that's falling in the white space between functions because the company is going through a, you know, a phase of growth where you, know, you haven't established a new function yet or you haven't broken apart a function into its constituent parts and you need to, you know, you need to identify that. So I would say the hard part is when decisions don't clearly fall within a framework and, and, uh, and you have to identify that and then identify that a decision needs to be made. That is something that I'm trying to get faster at because I think the faster you identify that, the faster those decisions end up getting like addressed and, and made properly. And then uh, another thing I try to do is I try to make as few decisions as possible. If I'm the one making a lot of decisions, something's wrong. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go to, you know, the extreme where if I'm making a decision, then, you know, uh, there, there's a failure. Um, but if I'm making a decision, one of the things that I, that I like to do is think about, okay, what's the world where I'm not the one making this decision? And how do we move toward that? Um, and do we need to move there now? Or is this, do we need to move there, you know, over a couple years? Um, and that kind of, helps me think about building the company in a healthy way where we're bringing in the right people to, you know, to scale and, and make decisions as the company grows. Um, so that's another thing I think about. And then last, I'll, I'll give you one more thing around decisions. We brought in a new um, executive a, a few months ago. And one thing I'm really enjoying with this person is a lot of conversation as opposed to uh, cutting to decisions quickly. And he calls it uh, sharpening our swords uh, um, on on particular thoughts. And it's I've actually found that it's really helpful to think about it like that. Um, we spend time debating and discussing and sharpening our swords on a particular issue. And what it does is over time, it just yields a lot of clarity of thought when you have that time set aside to engage on difficult topics. And so rather than even thinking of it as like, okay, let's just make this decision, it's, hey, let's spend some time sharpening our swords together on this topic so that we make the best decision. And then presumably use the sword. And then you got to make the decision at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and then you make the cut. Okay. Right. Let's talk about what's next for Patreon. You just raised a bunch of money in April. At the beginning of the pandemic last year, you laid off 13% of your workforce. You made a video about it on YouTube explaining why and saying we're reconfiguring the product team. Tell me about that change, that reconfiguration, and then tell me what this new round of funding is for. That was a really hard thing for the team. We brought in a new product leader um, and we spent like a couple months with, you know, with this new product leader thinking about, you know, our, our path forward and what we wanted to build and why and the sort of vision for, for the company. And then at the end of this process, we looked up and realized we didn't have the right folks and skill sets and things that we needed to execute on that vision. So we made the change. Very painful, very difficult thing for the team to go through. The right thing for the business, the right thing for Patreon, the right thing for, for executing on that vision. And what is that vision? The vision is better content and community on Patreon. So right now, for example, when a creator wants to post a video on Patreon, they have to use our Vimeo integration, which is fine, 
but it should be really easy to post a video on Patreon and make a video available to your members. When a creator wants to host a community jam with their fans, they have to use our Discord integration. And that's actually great. I think we're, you know, we want to keep that integration at the front and center because I think a lot of creators love Discord. But there's a lot of creators who also want to make that really easy in the Patreon app and they want to, they don't want to have to download another app. They want to be able to have a jam with their community and their members right there on Patreon. And so a lot of the sort of future focuses on content community, at least in the near term. And then the long term, it's all the things that we've been talking about. Again, this, this competition to help creators make money, to help creators build viable, sustainable businesses. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's such a good thing for the world of creative people. It's such an important step for the internet. And again, I'm optimistic, but I, I think it's going to work. And I think it's going to create essentially a second renaissance is how I've been framing it. You know, I think it's going to make the first renaissance feel small. And, and I know that's a big statement, <laughs> but it's a huge statement. It also implies that we're in the dark ages right now. <laughs> no, I don't think we're in the dark ages. I think this is the most exciting time to be a creative person ever. But I think this, what we're about to experience is a number and degree of creative people and creativity that the world has never seen. A, a total breaking apart of genres and niche markets and that are huge <laughs> and... Um, independent creativity that has both the distribution and the financing to work at a global scale. That's such an exciting time for artists and creators. And that, I think, is over the long run, is going to require massive infrastructural overhaul with everything, you know, from healthcare to payments to crypto. Oh, man. We got yeah, another hour for the crypto conversation. <laughs> but I mean, the, the point is that, that there's like all these things are intertwined and there's clearly a, a lot of things that creative people will need to to, you know, successfully build businesses over this next chapter. So that new product strategy, you're building a native video player, you're building a native discord like functionality. Uh, no, not not like native Discord. I think that's a that's a whole company, and there's a lot of great yeah. people there doing that. It's more community tools, ways for creators to be more closely connected to their fans. Um, and like what exactly that is yet? Yeah, we haven't released it. We haven't we haven't put it out. But it's essentially ways for creators to better host communities on Patreon. And you're going to keep the Vimeo integration, or you're going to build a native video product. We want to keep integrations because a lot of creators. I mean, the p part of the way that we want to build things is giving creators options. Right. Like we, you know, a lot of creators want to email their members. And so we have a MailChimp integration. A lot of creators want to run Discord communities. So we're going to have the Discord integration. So, yes, absolutely. It's a really important part of the strategy. We don't want to we don't want to tell creators how to run their businesses and where to run their businesses. What do you think is next in the, in the short term for Patreon? What should people be looking out for? I think it's that that hyper focus on better content experiences on on Patreon. That's like something that creators really want. Better content authoring, better content organization, helping members find their content better, uh, better content consumption, just like better content tools in general is most immediately what we're working on. When do you think that'll pay off? Pay off? Like when will it be? When will, when will I see it? Is it somebody who subscribes to multiple creators on Patreon? This year. You'll, you'll, you'll see it this year. I mean, we're, we're making iterative improvements on, on all that, you know, as we speak. Okay, well, Jack, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on Decoder. Thank you, Neil. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Jack Conti for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. 
If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.